0: We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are gonna determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really gotta start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us, it's in us. Knowledge of science is power, it gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know, it's about how science literature. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. And let me tell you folks, today we are doing just that. We are joined by a very special guest, a good friend, a wonderful human being, and a brilliant scientist, Mr. Otis Bruner. Thank you for joining us, Otis.
1: Well, hello. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I meant every word. <laughs> Otis is joining us from sunny old England. And Otis actually works for the Marine Biology and Ecology Research Center. And the faction of that, which is the Deep Sea Conservation Research Unit, or as I love that acronym, CREW. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So. Um, Otis, before we get into it, let's just, let's find out a little bit about who you are. Tell us, tell us how you got into marine biology, sir. What grabbed you?
1: (laughs) Oh, um, well, anyone that's known me for a long while will say that since childhood, I've been obsessed with marine life. All right. So, uh, to answer that question, I don't know where it started. It started before memories began. (laughs)
0: interesting i love that before memories began all right so you always had a a
1: interest in the marine world yeah definitely yeah since childhood i mean it it starts how it does with all kids sharks you know big scary things with teeth and yeah Mm -hmm. monsters (laughs) why people become paleontologists i'd imagine dinosaurs right i think it's along the same lines
0: (laughs) hell i I, I I never got into the dinosaurs, but after getting no? into sharks, I definitely understand why. You know,
1: you definitely respect the dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ex-
0: <laughs> exactly. Even if they had feathers, which apparently they did.
1: There's nothing wrong with that. You know. Nothing wrong with it. it I have feathers, yeah. but I don't like to talk about you're, it. Anyway, <laughs> you're a liberal. You're a liberal guy. That's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're into that, right? Um, okay. Cool. So. So you've always been interested in marine biology and you're not far, yep. I believe you're from Taunton, is that right?
1: Yeah, Taunton in Somerset, yeah. As far as England goes, it's pretty landlocked, because you can't really get that far from the sea, but yeah. Oh, well. I was, uh, I was born and raised a little closer to the sea, I guess that might have something to do uh, with it.
0: That might, and uh, then you continued not too far away from home in Plymouth. Uh, which is actually where we met.
1: Exactly, yeah. Um, And we met in that lovely ocean city. We did.
0: Britain's (laughs) Ocean City. I love that tagline. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) So can you just briefly tell us what you did your undergraduate
1: degree on? So my undergraduate degree was marine biology and oceanography at Plymouth University. It was a three-year degree. I also took a placement year in between the second and third year, making it a four-year degree. The primary focus, I would say, was on ecology and conservation. That's the sort of way that Plymouth University leans, and for good reason. I would say so. But also including a lot of oceanography, maths and physics, and all sorts of other stuff as well. I mean, taxonomy, microbiology, they threw a lot in there. It's mm-hmm. A well-rounded degree. Highly recommend it to anyone. Are you
0: youngins looking for some good marine biology university, <laughs> Plymouth Uni. I'll, I'll back that up. I'll represent. Excellent. Um... Okay, so very cool. So after you finish your degree, you have now joined this crew. You joined Dr. Kerry Howell's lab, is that yes. correct?
1: Yes, the deep sea crew within the Marine Biology and Ecology Research Center of Plymouth oh, University, yes. And I'm very happy to be there.
0: The one and only. Well, it sounds like they're really happy you're there too. And frankly, I'm really happy you're there. So can you just tell the folks listening at home a little bit about the deep sea crew what what is it about
1: well the deep sea crew is all about i'd say to sum it up is about conservation of the deep sea that's why it's the deep sea conservation research unit we lean towards quantitative techniques including predictive modeling we lean towards this method because it's hard to get data on the deep sea as you can imagine right I mean, there's a lot of it, and it's quite far away. The,
0: there's that, uh, I, I actually, I don't know if this is true, but it's been repeated so many times that it's either a case of broken telephone or it's real telephone. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the saying that they like to say, that we know more about the surface of the moon than our benthic environment of the deep sea, you know? We've mapped more of the moon than we have of our deep
1: sea. I can completely believe that. Again, like you, I've heard it a lot, haven't fact-checked it. Exactly, but... I I I believe it. I mean, it's hard to look through water. It's not as clear as you think. <laughs> as as Petra, especially Looking through when space, that, seems to be
0: a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. Especially when it goes miles and miles down. Um, now, speaking of mapping the deep sea, as far as I uh, understand, we sorry, you and and the lab, you specialize in two different things. One is mapping the deep, which is, I believe, what You specifically do. Um, And you also look at kind of population ecology and biodiversity of benthic or bottom dwelling species in the deep. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. We have uh, uh, Rebecca Ross, a PhD student within the lab, is looking at um, larval dispersal modeling, which is important for population connectivity in the deep sea because there are geographical barriers. Right. But. In the deep sea, it really depends on how you get a benthic species, how you connect them to another benthic species miles and miles away. And often the method is larval dispersion, but you can um, quantify this dispersion. And it's still quite theoretical how connected populations are in the deep sea. Mm. And for marine protection, it's very important that you protect an entire population or, and or improve population connectivity by creating marine protected areas. So a lot of our work is influenced by the creation of marine protected areas in and around the northeast Atlantic. You,
0: you know, you bring up an, an interesting point. Well, it's, it's one of the research questions, isn't it? Not only is it cold and isolated down the <laughs> deep sea, but it's also very dark. It makes It, it, it makes it a very interesting... I mean, the the types of species that dwell down there might have less of a reliance on sunlight, for example, than others. Or whale falls, for the folks listening at home that aren't familiar, when a whale dies, eventually, after the gassy mixture of its carcass goes away, it will float to the bottom <laughs> oh. of the sea, like a fall, exactly. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it will become its own kind of... Micro ecosystem.
1: Also, micro ecosystems are waiting there in the deep sea for it. Uh, species that rely on um, chemosynthetic bacteria, symbiotic chemosynthetic bacteria that live off of whale falls and the uh, sulfurs, the sulfides. I may be getting this wrong, but the sulfides within the bones and the fatty tissue of the whales, these same organisms live or close relatives to these organisms also live on hydrothermal vents and rely on unique right unique inputs to the deep sea like whale falls or mineral deposits
0: that's pretty crazy so so they're just all kinda like waiting on hold until (laughs) something happens
1: well maybe yeah Um, sounds like it's it's quite it's a very interesting case Um, unfortunately I don't actually much work into this so i can't i don't take my word for gospel but uh it is it is very interesting and it it got a lot of press when hydrothermal vents were found not just because it was such a huge discovery but also for potential what what it means for life elsewhere in the universe if life can exist independent of sunlight on earth maybe it can exist independent of sunlight in other areas of the universe
0: well It is interesting you bringing up the um, chemosynthesizers, because they do have the... uh, Oh, man, where is it? I think it's some lake in the States, but of the bacteria that eats arsenic. You know what I'm talking about? Wow. Yeah. It's crazy, but, you know, we really... we, We have so little understanding of just how diverse we have, even when it comes to primary producers. I mean... Completely. You know... So, aside from these micro-ecosystems that act like Star Wars fans just waiting for a new movie to come out, um, (laughs) we have your specialty, which is mapping of the deep, which I find fascinating. So, please, give us the rundown.
1: Well, the species and populations we're mostly looking at are benthic organisms, organisms that live on the seabed, mostly because they are quite sampleable <laughs> if that's a word yeah and possible to quantify if you can imagine if you're sampling in a small area in the pitch black or in the pitch black with a small torch and you see if you see a fish go by you don't know if that's the same fish that went by two hours ago or whatever so we focus on the the macro the Benfic organisms that we can see with our cameras mm. because we send cameras down there and do video transects of the seabed that's how we get our raw data on the biological organisms that are there so do you do
0: just the submersibles with cameras or would you put down a bruv a an automated camera and just <laughs> let it sit on the bottom and record
1: well we um we're quite keen on video transects so sending a video camera along a line of maybe up to a thousand meters with about a 10 meter field of view right but we do use a uh, drop frame systems effectively an epibemphic sledge with cameras attached but a, a phd student within the lab Mills, his phd is focused on the use of auvs and rovs mm. in quantifying deep sea biodiversity he wants to look at how useful those methods are and how transferable models are that he builds with those different methods. So we, we use a range of techniques, but primarily video recordings. And I mean, this is this
0: research fairly new? I mean, we haven't really had the technology up until the last like 40 years really, right? To To go into the deep sea and actually study
1: this. It's extremely new and unrefined and unexplored. Mm. That's why a lot of our work is exploratory in terms of techniques, in what techniques we use, we have we have uh, we have teams developing new techniques, and we are constantly testing the best methods. For example, this was prior to my inclusion the deep sea crew. My dissertation was focused on what is an appropriate sample size to take when you're video recording the the seabed, mm. because a lot of video recordings of the seabed are purely opportunistic. If we can get a camera down there for this amount of time, let's do it. It's expensive, right. but if we can do it here, if we can do it there, then, let's do it. So my dissertation was focused on web on what sample size is more appropriate and gives more reliable, repeatable results, rather than just sending a camera down there and having a look what's going on. Maybe we should standardize the technique so people can, people can work together. People can use each other's work because the techniques are standardized.
0: Well, a hundred percent. That's how you get some accurate representation of. The relative population, isn't it? And and actually, it's funny because if I remember correctly, Otis, you were you were with <laughs> us down at the Marine Biological Association, the MBA, in the special library section, and you had access to some pretty cool. Was it? It was um, catches from scientific surveys.
1: Yes. Well, I, I as you remember correctly, I was still I was tweaking my dissertation in the hopes for publication over that summer. And the Marine Biology Association in Plymouth's library is fantastic and an excellent place to work with a beautiful view. But not only that, it holds an extensive and very old library going back to the beginning of deep sea biology, which is the Challenger Expedition. That's amazing. I would say it's the beginning of deep sea biology in the 1870s, Hmm. which was the, the driver for all deep sea geology, biology, oceanography, that you see today right and while i'm on that subject actually i would like to mention that our lab included there's a consortium working towards the potential a re a launch of a expedition entitled challenger 2022 hmm. in honor of the challenger expeditions that's pretty cool which will hopefully tackle large questions in the ocean we we're, we're looking at large scale questions and thinking about this sort of thing but at the moment it's still in the um it's still in the yeah. design needs, phase. need
0: to get a, a, a good crowdfunding, maybe get a cool name like Bodie McBoatface, <laughs> like that.
1: Yeah, well,
0: if only. <laughs> hey, never say never. That's what I learned from Justin Bieber.
1: Oh, wow. Well, what didn't we learn from Justin Bieber?
0: <laughs> I know. I wake up every morning and I ask myself that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so jumping back a sec to the mapping portion, because I... I do yes not not just because it's your topic of research, but also because it is really it's interesting conceptually. Why is mm. it important even to map, and why why do we need to know what the contours and the geography are? Um, does that help us understand better what geological processes might be having, what um, what oceanographic processes might be happening? I mean. What are the the main drivers for why we should even bother
1: with deep-sea mapping? Well, one map can lead to many more maps. For example, a lot of the And we all need more maps, as you'll soon find out. For example, (laughs) a a bathymetry map can be very useful. A bathymetry map you can determine for using multi-beam sonar, where you send an acoustic signal to the seabed, and the speed at which it returns gives you an indication of... The depth you're above and these maps have been created over large portions of the ocean and details like depth can be used as a proxy for current speed substrate type mm. suspension of particles all these other variables which you can also map now that you have your bathymetry map <laughs> <laughs> um, and combining these maps you can determine what else is going on there you can create temperature and salinity maps based on CTDs and the more maps what, you what have are CTDs? the better, sorry? because it's the more information you have in an area oh sorry CTDs conductivity temperature depth data which is where you send down a piece of equipment that measures conductivity temperature and depth through the water column oh cool all right that makes sense that makes sense conductivity being a proxy for salinity as well oh interesting all right as I said before If you take a small video transect of the seabed you'll get some information on what biology is there what Mm. beautiful species and endangered species are down there but one one video transect one small line in the expansive ocean isn't very useful for in terms of conservation but if you can take the information that you've found in those areas the information like what ecosystems are there and then combine that with information you've derived from environmental data, from perhaps conductivity, temperature, depth profiles, and bathymetry maps, you can apply a predictive model, which using the relationship between the environmental variables and the ecosystems that you find there will predict as well as it can, where else you'll find these ecosystems and short of video recording the entire seabed. Currently, we have no better way of determining what's down there.
0: So, with the bathymetry map that you're talking about, that that's the the yeah. bottom map. That's the base for everything. Is that correct?
1: In in my work, yes. It's a very bathymetry or depth is a very good proxy for many other variables. Right. And it can be done very efficiently and and relatively cheaply from research vessels, which is why we do have quite a lot of bathymetry maps of the seabed. Also, as you can imagine, the contours of the seabed have been very important to the military throughout, from the Second World War, well, from the First World War onwards, yeah, of course. you know, or maybe even before that. Mil- the military have been mapping the deep and using this technology long before scientists had access to it.
0: It's very interesting. I, there's there's a few different directions I want to go from there. But while we're on the topic of research vessels, um, I understand there's some exciting news coming from the crew the crew lab.
1: Very exciting. Yes, the research vessel in question is not unfortunate is not Boaty McBoatface or the Sir David Attenborough, unfortunately. God damn it! But it is the David. <laughs> <Dave face. laughs> it is. The James Cook, a very large research vessel of 90 something meters. Oh, wow. This is a expedition to determine population connectivity in the deep sea, which is very important for conservation and the creation of marine protected areas. This expedition will be traveling around the Northeast Atlantic sampling specific areas of interest, and it is a joint project between the deep sea crew of Plymouth University, Oxford University, the Joint Nature Council Committee, the JNCC, right. and the British Geological Survey wow. is funded by the National Ecology Research Centre or NERC. Jeez. So we're trying to find out some important. We're trying to answer some important questions about population connectivity in the on the seabed in the Northeast Atlantic. It's going to be very interesting. It's a forty-day cruise around the Northeast Atlantic. We will be collecting video data, as I mentioned before. We'll be setting down video transects We will have uh, So cool. GoPros <laughs> attached to such video transits. Deep sea GoPros. We also have HD video recorders, and we have an ROV as well. An ROV pilots piloting such ROV. The deep sea crew will primarily be focusing on this video data and the ecosystems we find down there. Oxford University is primarily fo- focusing on the genetic side of it, so we will be returning samples hmm. to aboard and doing genetic analysis. So we're trying to cover all our bases here and make the most of our time. It's going to be a very jam-packed, fun-filled expedition. So it sounds like
0: is the end goal to be able to come up with some comparative analysis. Uh, have they done a similar expedition in the Pacific or Southern Oceans? And- it's
1: not aimed at a comparison with other areas. We've done, We've collected data from this area before. It will be building on these databases, but it's not to compare population connectivity in other areas. It's more to determine in the first place what the level of population connectivity is in the deep sea because still much of what we understand of the deep sea population connectivity is theoretical based on larval dispersal of the organisms just purely through calculations of how far this larvae can get before it dies and that's mostly how we determine the potential connectivity between populations but using genetic analysis and quantitative video analysis we should be able to answer some more questions maybe determine how connected these populations are and in this area much of the area we're sampling is covered by marine protected areas and is protected from fortunately from bottom trawling We by by determining these populations are connected we can help justify these marine protected areas
0: so well one that's amazing that's extraordinarily important <laughs> but not only that you you really you hit the nail on the head and and, and brings me to question so You're talking about these marine protected areas, these MPAs, and how they are protected from bottom trawling. Have we seen more deep sea fishing recently? Has that been on the increase? Has that been on the rise? And if so, I guess the, the target fish that they're going for, it must be changing then pretty dramatically to be going all the way to the deep sea.
1: Well, what's been happening since around the 1950s is that boat board technology has been getting so much better for trawling vessels that they can afford to go further out to sea and as coastal populations are depleted it's becoming more profitable to harvest fish from the deep oceans. The unfortunate thing is that the deep sea is often a very slow and stable environment where organisms can grow and live for thousands of years. Hmm. For example, cold water coral reefs, which a lot of people, a lot of people, especially in the UK, aren't aware of. Is that like black coral? Black corals indeed, yes. They exist all around the UK and they are some of the most beautiful creatures. (laughs) Once you get a light down there, they're amazing and they can grow meters tall and create dense networks of coral reefs in our waters. These coral reefs can take tens of thousands of years to grow, but one trawl will remove it instantly. It's so sad. I'm not saying that the trawlers, the trawlers, the trawlers don't want to trawl these coral reefs because. It messes up their gear. It's no good. It's not, no one wants to harvest these organisms. They're not commercially viable. So determining where these organisms are...
0: Well, and also it ruins their equipment, doesn't it? It's, 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 they're losing money by it.
1: They lose a lot of money by it. It can destroy their equipment and cause real damage. So determining where these organisms are, we can hopefully prevent damages on both sides, damages to the ecosystem and damages to the fishing industry. Because that's what marine protection is all about. It's all about a win-win situation for all stakeholders involved. It's not about conserving the environment at at the degradation of other industries. It's about conserving the environment so that all stakeholders can profit.
0: Thank you, because I don't think that is what everybody has in mind when they talk about marine conservation. And I think that is really important to highlight, that it is, it is a... Uh, Everybody has to be at the table. Every stakeholder involved has to be validated and addressed. And to ignore one section, you know, fishermen or surfers, whatever it is, whoever it is, you know, you you have to incorporate everybody. So I, a hundred percent, stand behind you on that, and I wish more people did as well.
1: Well, it's the um, it's the party line for a lot of conservation, uh, marine conservation in particular. The party line is. benefit all stakeholders but people get lost in the uh the idea that you can't conserve the environment and also harvest from it i mean sustainable sustainable harvesting is the the end game i believe we we need to protect our we need to favor our environment a little more than the industry at this point but we need everyone to work together really
0: i mean i do think and and i think it's possible it's definitely not something that's out of someone's imagination it's doable it's just getting everybody to actually fall in line (laughs) now i do i do have another question this was something i was going to bring up earlier when it comes to finding out about these ecosystems and when it comes to the fishing and mapping how how does climate change and either ocean acidification or the actual temperature warming of the ocean, how how would those affect, if they do affect, deep sea ecology and research?
1: Well, a simple answer to that question is far beyond me, but it's important to know that <laughs> the deep sea isn't isolated from the rest of the world. The main food source to the deep sea is food from the surface waters that are created through photosynthesis. So if, say, temperature changes, water current movement caused by global global climate change were to affect surface production, that could seriously affect the deep sea ecosystem, an ecosystem that has been quite stable for for a very, very long time. Even shifts in planktonic communities, for example, higher temperatures in the Northeast Atlantic in recent years have led to shifts in the zooplankton community in the surface Mm. waters. And there's evidence that shifts in plankton community can have signals from those shifts can be found in the deep sea and what communities are found there. So the answer is the answer is I'm uncertain. And I'm, I think the general consensus is uncertainty, but the, the only certainty is that the deep sea is not immune from, human activity on a global scale. No, oh, no, definitely not. And,
0: you know, it would be interesting to see, again, like you're talking about, both the surface and, and the bottom, but also those species that go in between, nautilus, that, you know, during during the day they might hide in the deep and at night they come up. I mean, one of many, many species that follow that route. You know, it's just, it is, it's something that we don't necessarily think about or incorporate
1: well i agree i think the the term outside out of mind applies here oh yeah this term is often applied to ocean conservation because yeah people like the beach to be clean people like to be able to go surfing and swimming and spend the day at the beach but there's so much going on under the water <laughs> that they can't see that is so important to our economy environment social well-being cultural well-being but well particularly in england but also all around the world our culture is intimately linked with the The ocean and the deep sea is even further out of sight and out of mind so it receives very little concern.
0: Struggling to remember my oceanography class in my undergrad but the current systems that are found throughout the world, the the world's oceans, I mean the CO2 that's been collected now in the surface waters if I remember correctly will go down to the deep sea and be passed along the entire world's Basically, in a deep sea current. Yeah. And then some years from now, we're going to have this like high rise in CO2 because of all the CO2 from this day and age is now finally coming back up to the surface.
1: Once it upwells, yeah, after its long journey across the global thermohaline circulation. Yes.
0: That is what it's called. Thank you. Oh so nice to have someone this... that knows what they're talking about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are all sorts of predictions on what will happen concerning the global thermohaline circulation and reintroduction of CO2. I couldn't possibly comment on what I think would happen. My, my, um, my research is on a, a very local scale concerning, for now, the Northeast Atlantic and the, mm. the organisms there. I believe that climate scientists are amazing in their scope even if their predictions even if their predictions are wrong just attempting to make those predictions is pretty impressive uh, it's i mean there's
0: just so many factors that they have to incorporate and in some cases i mean instability is part of that environment like what if you're in a place right where the the plates are shifting and you might have frequent earthquakes
1: mm. that come i mean
0: it's constantly changing the the landscape
1: areas of tecton- tectonic activity in particular hotspots of biological diversity in the deep sea because it results in seamounts. And when you get seamounts, you get different regimes in currents, you get interesting sedimentation, you get all sorts of interesting features and you find very interesting communities there. For example, a lot of the marine protected areas within UK waters are centred around seamounts because of the interesting biodiversity found there. And also certain coral reefs, certain cold water coral reefs, Lophelia Petusa coral reefs are often found around these Hmm. seamounts. And if my current working model is to be believed, then there are a lot around seamounts such as the Anton Dawn Hmm. seamount just off the UK. Interesting. That's very
0: interesting. Well, I I believe your working model.
1: (laughs) It's not been validated yet, so let's not believe it quite yet. (laughs) But it does make a very pretty map, I'll tell you. I mean, I've uh, colored but, it all nice in GIS. It looks good. I'll I'll send you a screenshot. It'll be please awesome.
0: Please do. I I have to say, uh, doing the m last year, working in ArcGIS and R, I have to give a mm. shout out to Liam because he was really the master... And Lara, they were both the masterpieces behind both of them. But we had one day where we were just fooling around. And I mean, there's some pretty cool stuff that you can come up with. Some very pretty maps.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's very rewarding. In, in mapping and modeling, it's very rewarding that you can spend months at a computer screen dealing with numbers and equations, but when you get towards the end, you see your work presented in a map that you can see and understand, and you can project that map around the waters of the UK, and you see you see the UK as a continent, and then you see colors indicating your predictions around the waters there, and it's it's very satisfying. Definitely, I
0: understand that feeling. It's just cool also to know that you can represent your data in so many different ways and have each one be interpreted slightly differently, too. I mean, obviously, there's definitely inappropriate ways to do it. So I'm not saying you can just willy-nilly, but it is cool that that's possible. <laughs> and it's true. Everybody does. Yeah. You can have a pride. Everyone likes the colorful map. <laughs> so we, we kind of hinted and talked about this briefly, but I, I'd like to maybe expand a little bit more before we wrap this up. The application of the research that you're doing, you know, like you said, you want to get all the stakeholders involved and whatnot. Do you do that by trying to influence policy? What, where, what do you
1: use your your um, research for? The lab's role in general is to give information to support to support um, advisory committees like the JNCC the JNCC then advises the UK government and creates these stakeholder meetings so we provide our lab is given a remit or an even a grant perhaps right. to study these these areas because there's a desire to protect areas that need protecting so we provide the scientific information to create a foundation that the JNCC or other conservation committees use to ad- to then create these marine protected areas. These marine protected areas are created and then suggested to governing bodies. And then these governing bodies decide whether we should have these marine protected areas. And then they also decide what the action should be taken. We All we do is suggest where would be most efficiently protected. They've got a certain amount of space they can allocate to marine protected areas. They wanna maximize its ability to conserve these areas. We tell them where would be best.
0: Now, do you do it in a sense of seasonal protection as well? If there are areas that are necessarily big in a certain type of fishing for you know, two- or three-month period, would you say, okay, why don't you rotate between area A, B, and C during these months, vary it up a little bit, and then these are off-limits for the rest of the year?
1: That is often a management plan used. Our lab, in particular, has no say in what management strategies should be used as such. I mean, we advocate no trawling in areas of delicate ecosystems such as coral reefs, which are designated as vulnerable mm. marine ecosystems. Yeah, no doubt. Meaning there is international pressure to protect them.
0: When it comes to protection as well, we also have to talk to enforcement. And I know you said your, you know, your lab doesn't necessarily... Um, deal with the actual management but uh, protected areas enforcing those is hard enough it's expensive it's time consuming and you know if you don't have satellites and drones it's almost a thankless task it is a thankless task but when it comes to the deep sea what are some of the ways that they could be effectively managed
1: i'm glad you asked because even though i don't work on this particular area i do take a strong interest in it the primary method is the use of VMS, Vessel Monitoring Systems. These have to be implemented on all vessels over a certain size within the European Union. So any European Union boat fishing oh, wow. within European Union waters has to have a vessel monitoring system if it's above a certain size. This sends a, a ping every, I think, two hours or so to a satellite giving Good. GPS location. and. These vessels are not allowed to stay within marine protected areas or travel below a certain speed wow. within marine protected areas. This means that it it's almost impossible for them to actually trawl in these marine protected areas. That's that's one of the management methods. It's it's sort of it's not like the the vessel monitoring system will disable right. the boat if they go into it. It's more just a monitoring system. If you see that a, a vessel has clearly been Trawling in a marine protected areas, so you'll give them a warning, and then there could maybe even be fines. Yeah, vessel monitoring systems are the primary example of how to monitor so, fisheries I mean, in these areas.
0: I find that stuff very interesting because you can go into so many different. You know, like the fines are the fines worth it? Would they say, you know what, I'll have to pay ten thousand dollars, but for the amount of profit I'm going to make at the end of this, it doesn't really matter. Or are they such steep
1: fines that? Well often fines aren't implemented. It's more of a, not a goodwill system. I mean, there's very little bite to conservation policy. Hmm. I mean, there are things you're not supposed to do, but it's very rarely written into law that this will be the punishment. I see. Often there is no technical punishment, but you're just not allowed to do it. They just, you just- It's a gentleman's game. You just can't do it, exactly. And I don't, I think it's politically embarrassing to be breaking EU rules, if you're a member of the EU, yeah. and all such stuff. It's not strictly enforced with any sort of policing agency, or fines, or jail time. But it is the, it is the rules. <laughs> and people do often abide by the rules. I know,
0: right? What losers? Squares. Alright everyone, that is all we have time for today. But tune in next week to hear the second half of the episode... Otis, Bruner, and the crew, part two. Don't forget, the Imposter is going to be doing updates on the expedition that Otis and the rest of Dr. Carrie Howell's lab, the deep sea crew, will be doing uh, aboard the James Cook Research Vessel. So remember, the links to that will be put in the blog, but you can always tune into the Imposter Facebook page or Twitter to get your own updates on the expedition. Other than that, don't forget to like and share us on Facebook and Twitter and SoundCloud and subscribe to us on the iTunes Music Store Keywords, The Impostor Podcast. All right, everyone, that is it. Have a lovely weekend, and we shall see you next week. Toodaloo for now. And remember...